Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Tom, Dick and Hyman show. Joining me this week is uh, Welsh Jenna. Say hello, Welsh Jenna. Hello, Welsh Jenna. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show this week. No problem. It's my pleasure to be here. I've invited you on for a, um, a specific purpose. We're going to be talking about mental health illnesses and also the connection between that and uh, homelessness. Mm-hmm. Two subjects that are very close to my heart. Just to start off with, you informed me there's a little bit of a debate about terminology, even in the broad sense of mental health, mental illness, mental well-being. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, there's there's various debates about how it should be referred to and how that also re- um, relates to the stigma right? as well. So if you say some of the words, terminology's got negative connotations like mentally ill or... So, I mean, when you say stigma, uh, stigma means associated with a certain sense of shame. There's a certain sense of shame attached to it. Yeah, and that it just, it, it adds a real negative, say, I don't know, mentally ill, that makes, it sounds defective in some way. Yeah. You no, know? or if, if you say, I'm suffering with mental ill health, that's a li- bit, little bit less harsh. It's less on the nose. Yeah, mental disease is mm. quite a controversial one because the whole nature of disease is that it's something particularly causing the problems and there's not really right. any, there's no germ that causes... Right, that's because it implies like a virus or something yeah. like that. And, okay. and that's not the case with... The one thing I do like about uh, the word disease though, mm-hmm. it drives home the fact that it could happen to anybody, anybody could get a mental could have a mental health illness issue at any point in their life yeah plus it's you it's not your fault either the thing we associate with disease is that it's you were just really unlucky it was just poor happenstance yeah it wasn't your fault Mm. it kind of makes people feel more willing to help if they think of it as you were a, a helpless victim yeah and then that can link into the discussions about um they make comparisons about, uh, say, if you've got cancer or something, you wouldn't be judged in the same way as if you, you've got a mental health problem. You say, oh, you don't... There's not so much... There's not stigma attached with someone who's got a disease such as no. cancer or diabetes or whatever, but, say, schizophrenia, that's that's got more connotations. So, yeah, that, that use of the word disease, I guess, has plus, plus points and negatives, but there is a lot of debate around this issue about about whether it is a disease or not right um i think i quite like the term there's well-being yeah mental well-being or mental wellness and i think that's how we should think about it more because you think of mental health the the two words mental health Mm. that's we all have mental health so good um, or bad yeah exactly it there is no um it's just a fact mental health is what we have so then you've got the spectrum of mental health where Mm. we're all constantly on that spectrum of whether it's going towards poor mental health or good mental health and we will we'll slide along that spectrum throughout our lives on a daily weekly yearly basis but then some people obviously slide towards the the poor mental health side of the spectrum and can get stuck and that's where you've got the certain again i'm struggling to say disorder is Mm. that the right word i don't know but the certain conditions that are on the lower end of the 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 spectrum because i've read two statistics one is saying um 10 of people 
will suffer from I think it was like depression, anxiety, those kind of disorders. Mm-hmm. But then I saw another statistic that said up to twenty five percent of all people will have some uh, will have some encounter with a mental illness. It might not be long term. Mm. It might just be a one off, but it affects up to twenty five percent, a quarter of all people. Yeah, one in four. The the statistics that Mind and all the various mental health charities cite is one in four people will suffer with some kind of mental health problems in their lifetime. Yeah, and if you associate it with well being, that means you you're including it in everything. Because I think the seventies is when the big health fad, you know, going to the gym, putting on mm. your lycra, running on the spot, all that shit, stretching out on Sunday. What was it? The six a.m. breakfast shows used to stretch out that oh, old woman, Jane Fonda. Was <laughs> it? <laughs> Because got- then you associate mental health is included in that. Oh. So it's not a separate issue. Well, it's not separate because um, one of the big factors in improving your mental health is exercise and physical health. If you've got good physical health, I mean, th- there's a correlation between poor physical health and poor mental health. Mm-hmm. And also for people who suffer with depression, exercise is often cited as a... A helpful tool. Yeah, I can't in- remember his name, but there was some philosopher in ancient Rome. I think he figured out even then that uh, you have to exhaust your brain during the day, otherwise you can't sleep at night. Mm. So I mean, even back then, people knew the connection between. Yeah, and but you, we know in our everyday life anyway. If you feel more active, you feel better. Or if you come back from the gym, if you're the sort of person that goes to the gym, <laughs> then you know you get that that the endorphins and that buzz. It, yeah, it's a good feeling. Um, let's go through what are some of the more common types of uh, mental illness, for lack of a better term. Okay, so you got it, it, it's divided into categories. So you've got your common mental disorders, which are depression, OCD, phobias, anxiety. And then you've got your severe mental disorders, which are schizophrenia, bipolar affective. And these are ones that um, are psychotic disorders so they've got the the hallucinations and the real break from reality associated is with the them. distinction one is kind of more to do with moods and the other is like perceptions of reality uh, yeah but then again something like schizophrenia you may just they're not necessarily enduring disorders so you might only have one schizophrenic episode in your whole life as you said before you know it doesn't necessarily mean if you it happens to you once where you have hallucinations and um, delusions it, it may never happen again in your life mm. whereas the, the common mental disorders such as depression or OCD they can be more enduring and more difficult to to cure also the problem is if with young people most people, the, the onset of, say, schizophrenia or will, will start in adolescence. So if something goes untreated or undealt with in adolescence, then it can develop more severely in adulthood. Right. But actually, the, the Duchess of... I read somewhere the other day, the Duchess of Cambridge was going to launch the, the Children's Mental Health Week, okay. so which is the first time ever that, that that's been a thing. And you don't know, is it because we are more aware of it now as a society or are there is it an increasing problem it's oh in terms of uh is the situation getting better or worse it's hard to tell because the more time that goes by the better we understand these things the more likely it is you're going to spot it yeah so you're going to diagnose it Mm. but the rates going up doesn't necessarily mean it's a 
spreading epidemic or endemic or whatever. Yeah, but as you said, it's, we're unsure. We can't actually say either way. So clinical depression, I was trying to figure out, is there a difference between clinical depression and depression? And all I could work out is clinical depression just means you've been diagnosed, diagnosed. by a professional. Yeah, I would assume so. I, I couldn't say either way, but that would be my assumption. Yeah. And then you mentioned uh, bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And I think you said bipolar affective. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, I read. Yeah. I don't know. I know there's different types of bipolar, like bipolar one. Yeah. That's bipolar one is basically like me. Mm-hmm. You've had one, you can say one clear episode that was definitely like a manic moment. Mm. Bipolar two just means you've had more than one. Oh, okay. More than one episode. Okay. Because it's interesting because obviously that used to be called manic depression. That's what I was diagnosed with back. Yeah. But like now I don't 14, think. 14, maybe 14 years ago, they called it manic depression. Mm. And then they would use the term manic depression and bipolar interchangeably, right? And I was under the impression manic depression was not nearly as bad as bipolar, as bipolar yeah. disorder. And then when they explained to me, oh, no, they're pretty. They're the, the same thing. It's just a, uh, the lexicon is updating. Yeah. I was I, like, oh, oh, okay. So it is, it is the bad one. <laughs> so these are more related to being unable to regulate your moods. Mm-hmm. Like I struggle when you probably noticed. Jenny is a work colleague of mine. I'm not going to say where, but I lose my temper quite often. And I can't regulate getting back to normality do you know what I mean a normal mood that if I get angry I struggle I'm, it's easier for me to calm down from being angry than it is than if I get really depressed or sad to pick yourself yeah up. it could take me days mm. to get back to normal from being sad whereas angry takes me about half an hour but the thing is I lose my temper over I lose my temper to the same extent over anything hmm. Like, if I stub my toe, I get to a certain level. If uh, if someone sends me a terse email, I get to a certain level (laughs) of anger over it. And it takes me 20 minutes to get back again. So, yeah, I guess it's uh, depression bipolar is more you can't regulate your moods. It's not just a case of... Because, I mean, when I was telling people... um, Obviously, when I was first diagnosed, I didn't tell anyone. I was lucky I had a friend who'd been diagnosed about maybe seven or eight months before I had. So he was kind of guiding me through it. And did that make you feel better having a kind of ally? Yeah, not being alone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. When you talk to people about it, I used to not talk to anyone about it. And then I watched the Stephen Fry documentary mm-hmm. and he was his ethos is uh, the only way you can alleviate stigma is to speak openly about it. And I agree. So I started doing that. And the, the number one reply you get, uh, it's always, oh, everyone... Everyone feels down every now and then. It's like, yeah, but it's not quite the same thing. And that's you why feel down for a little bit and then you go back to being normal and your normal, stable mood like 90% of the time. Whereas like someone who's suffering from depression and anxiety, yeah. most of the time they're not what you would call normal. Yeah, exactly. They don't feel normal. But that's why education is is vital. Education and, yeah, people speaking out about it so people can learn and have a better understanding. And that's the way that stigma is going to alleviate as well, by more people mm. being aware of actually what's involved with these, these certain conditions. But, but what I do notice with you is... Your highs as well. So the, the mania. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, it's not uh, the silver lining, as I call it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you're 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 on fire, like, and you're coming up with all these ideas and real enthusiasm, which which you know is yeah, this is, is why it's the manic depression is kind of like an oxymoron, I guess. Where it's the manic yeah, side, the, uh, yeah. you're up. Depressed side, you're down. Mm. And so, yeah, when you're going through a bit of mania, yeah, I, for me personally, I feel like I'm a million dollars. I feel like I look like Brad Pitt. <laughs> 
I feel like I'm walking. You do. <laughs> I'm walking around like Ben Affleck in Batman versus Superman. Like I'm the shit. But it only lasts about 20 minutes. And then right after that is down, right down. Do you know what I mean? I normally feel real is shit the, after a manic okay. like a mania. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so directly after there's, there's a crash. Yeah, like a sugar. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Stephen Fry talks about this and he says how, you know, when he's in his, his manic stages that's where he's at his most creative and yep. he could sit and write for hours and you know come up with ideas for, for books or plays or so if you learn how to manage it there are there are benefits to the mania but obviously yeah with the high you've got to deal with the low as well mm. and part of those lows could be suicidal thoughts is probably yeah it's fairly mm. common do you know what I mean Absolutely. And uh, I had, like I say, I had, I'm bipolar one in the sense that I can only really say I've had one definite episode. I mean, I get little bits of mania every now and then, but it's more acute. Normally, if I'm getting a little bit manic, I'm reckless with spending. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm reckless with my emails. <laughs> I'm reckless with like life choices when I'm having a little bit. But yeah, it's like a cycle. That, um, I'll go from mania to depression to maybe a little bit of normality to back to mania back to depression like i'm never i'm not normal most of the time and that's the difference between someone who's had, got clinical depression when they're and someone who's just a bit down. low yeah who's like maybe you just lost your job and you're a bit low about it but you'll be normal again when you find three months later you're employed again and you're back to normalcy yeah it's the, it's the, the regulation of, of the moods i guess is mm. is far more difficult now, is there a difference between uh, mental health problems with... Is there a difference between men and women? Do, does one get it worse, one get it better? Different. There, there is a difference. So I think females are more prone to uh, emotional... Um, Easy now. <laughs> I'm the misogynist here. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, like emotional distress such as depression and things like self-harming and anorexia... Whereas for males, it's more behavioural. So right. schizophrenia or autism, somewhere on the autism okay. spectrum. And then obviously this can link into the, the idea of suicide. So Yeah, because when I looked up the stats, I think men are twice or maybe three times more likely to actually commit suicide rather than attempt. Yeah. So I think, first of all, suicide is the biggest killer of males under 35 in Britain, which is a real shocking that's a shocking stat considering cigarettes are still legal, alcohol is still legal, cars are still legal. Yeah, it, it, more than cancer, heart disease, everything, that you're more likely to die if you're under 35 by taking your own life. So that is something that we really need to address as, as a society, as a nation. Um, I do think it's getting more attention now. But um, it's it's shocking. But yeah, in terms of, I think females are more likely to attempt suicide. Mm. um, But they use methods such as taking pills. They're considered less violent methods. That's the the way it's described. Whereas the male in me is saying... uh, less efficient that's how we look at it it's if i'm gonna kill myself i'm gonna kill it i'm gonna do, do it, it in a properly. really efficient way that's yeah. quick so hanging is one of the most common jumping off a bridge yeah. guns if you can get your hand on a gun yeah um so, yeah obviously the drawback there is of course i think uh women are being a little bit more 
men are being more short-sighted when they're committing suicide. They're not thinking in terms of, I'm leaving a real mess behind here. Mm. So I think women think in terms of, oh, I don't want someone to be cleaning up my brains when I shoot myself. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I, I'm not sure if that's the case. <laughs> a little bit more considerate. Yeah, I think that when people decide that they're going to commit suicide, actually, they truly believe in their brain that they're doing what's best for everybody. The solution. Yeah. But it's not, it's a, it's more a nullification of the problem entirely. It's like, do you ever get a maths test where it'll be a chessboard and there's, you'll be in a certain position of weakness against your opponent and the question will be, what move can you do? And instead of answering it, you just take the chessboard and you just smash it on the floor. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not really a solution. It's like a total nullification <laughs> of the whole thing. My sister was banned from uh, playing Monopoly at our house at Christmas because <laughs> every time she was losing, she'd, like, smash the board up. So, yeah, she was Possible banned. Possible signs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Because <laughs> you stated um, right at the very beginning, you said there's no direct known cause. It could be... Uh, genetics could be a mixture of nature versus nurture. This, Yeah, and the whole biological argument. I mean, the years and years that there's been research into mental health problems, the, the evidence suggesting that it's there's a biological cause is very small. And even the the traditional chemical imbalance... Um, I'm going to be crossing that off my list. <laughs> yeah, I wrote down chemical imbalance. I'm yeah, that. it's... It's becoming more and more aware that that's, that's not the full story, that that that's, might not even be the case at all. I think Is it like this, environmental factors? That's, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm no, no expert on this, so I'm not saying it's definitely that or definitely yeah. not. But um, environmental factors are a huge influence, I, I think. If you, you could have potentially a series of traumatic events yeah so death in the family losing your job uh, i don't know what else a relationship breakdown yeah. abuse as a child abusive yeah. uh, partner these are, are trigger factors that will will cause the onset of a, of a mental distress and i think the i can't remember the exact statistic but people from um very deprived backgrounds are, are more likely to to have poor mental health so there's there's right. this also bigger kind of political societal debate of deprivation and mental health and how how we I deal wonder, with that i wonder if that will be borne out in the statistics of because everything is getting less and less equal mm. more in equal i wonder if the statistics will start to show that that people on the lower income scale are getting increasing levels of mental health problems yeah. Whereas people who are more and more well off are just yeah, totally fine. Okay, and what I was going to say also about the idea of mental health um, conditions being genetic. Again, mm. this is controversial subject. I was told they're normally passed down on the mother's side. It is hereditary. Mm, I've heard counter to that, that there's no genetic proof. However... If your your parents are uh, have a mental health condition, you are the statistics are that you're more likely to develop it. However, rather than it being a genetic like thing, a specific gene, yeah, so a biological pass down, it's more to do with environment. So you're brought up by a person who struggles with their mental health, so sub right. subconsciously or you you were picking up their habits. So yeah, it is getting 
transferred to you, but it's not to do with genetics. More biosmosis than... Yeah, it's not... Your DNA. Yeah. saying earlier the Stephen Fry well I don't know if he was the first person to do this but he was the first person I heard say or advocate for speaking openly about mental health but he was saying from a position of the sufferers for them to speak openly not just medical uh, not just mental medical health professionals the actual sufferers should be willing to speak openly about it as that's pretty much the only way you're going to alleviate any of the stigma around mental health issues but just to go over quickly what kind of um, knock-on effects can having a mental health problem have on your life? So saying uh, how depression and anxiety, how they can prevent you from having any sort of... Uh, well, actually, that's going to be really heavy there, say how prevent you from having a normal life, but most people who do, do have... They actually, do. Yeah, they do have a normal life. And that, that's, the, that's the aim of of recovery as well is to be able to manage your condition in order to be able to live a normal life but then work and employment is an interesting one because if your boss finds out well it's even before if he finds out when you're at an interview or should you should you be open about it should you tell no no not an interview no you don't tell anything bad about you at an interview no (laughs) but then but then that's Again, so then that you say about stigma, that's saying you're you instantly said that's saying something bad about yourself. Not so, an interview, no. Yeah, but but why does having a mental health condition have to be bad? It's so again, the, this this idea that having a mental health is is a bad negative thing is ingrained into our consciousness. It should be that it's part of who you are, and yeah. there are special certain allowances or certain. Well, I mean, look, if you were in a job interview mm. and you said, yeah, oh, yeah, I, you know, 10 years ago, I had this moment of psychosis where I saw a human being in the room that really wasn't there. But, you know, that was 10 years ago. Blah, blah. You're not getting the job, obviously. Well, but then that's stigma. Yeah, That's true. terrible. But you wouldn't at say- the same time, if you went in there and said, oh, yeah, I used to send really nasty emails to my boss, like okay. you're not going to get the job No, either. but that's work-related. But you okay, wouldn't say, yeah. if I had cancer, you know... Oh, a few years ago, I had cancer. You would say you're definitely not going to get the job. So oh, why? The, yeah, you're more a victim. Yeah, so it, it's it's a real difficult. Yeah, but it can also when you're in work and you're at a job, and mm-hmm. say it comes out, say you uh, decide, yeah, I am going to speak openly about it. Management would take note of that probably, and I think there has to be a generation or two that are like you know the guinea pigs in an experiment, the first batch of the ones that always die. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's going to be like that. You're going to find your manager is going to, they're going to take account of that, especially when it comes to things like promotions. It's going to be on the back of their mind that like, oh yeah, they, they're a manager yeah, person. That, is, that, that makes me really angry. But this is a, our generation have to be the ones to stand up and say, no, you can't actually just deny me a promotion just because. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, it's just discrimination. Yeah. It's like saying you ain't having this job because you're black. You know, it's, it's not your fault that you've got manic depression or, you know, and the very fact that you're in a job shows that you are coping with your condition. And the more you can be open with your employers, um, the more understanding they can have. And they they will, and they sh- well, they should make allowances for that because mm. maybe if you 
don't declare and you you end up taking lots of days off sick or you lose your temper or you know various um things that are associated with with your again i'm not saying illness but with your with your condition if you don't declare it then they will just observe that as you being a bit of a dick, like, oh, <laughs> and then you you might get fired for it. But yeah, if I wasn't upfront about it, people would be constantly saying, "What the hell is wrong with Tom?" Yeah, but because if people are aware, then it just adds a little bit of an understanding. Obviously, it doesn't mean that you should be able to get away with anything. Yeah, allows gross that. misconduct still applies. Yeah, to manic depressive. Yeah, it's that's like, oh, oh, don't mind the fact that he's just punched her so and so in the face. It's yeah. it is condition. Angels, no. demons. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> How are you supposed to tell? <laughs> so yeah, I think there should there should be openness in the workplace, but yeah, understandably, like there's two kinds of stigma. There's um, your own sense of self shame. Mm-hmm. from I'm inadequate, I'm not up to scratch, uh, abnormality, you know. And then there's the public stigma of how do people view me? How are people perceiving me? And of course, like, both of those can compound on one, in one another and then that leads to downward spiral. Spiral, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And of course, all of that leads to not seeking professional help. Yeah. Because you feel the shame, you don't want to talk to people about it. Not even yeah, because someone in confidentiality. You don't even really want to talk to them about it either. Yeah, and especially if if you're in a in a, a period of of down as well, because the, yeah, you were just going to isolate yourself, and yeah, the shame is too much, and that's a car. I think amongst all all the various different conditions, this idea of shame and. I'm not good enough or I'm a freak or everyone's better than me or something. This is across the board. So if we can figure out a way of helping with that, I don't know, then maybe we would be on a better track of finding a cure. I don't know. But then also I think you talk say about people speaking out. I think that in itself is part of the the healing process by speaking out, thinking that you're helping others as well. That's increasing your self-worth. Yeah. I can't remember where I read it. It might have been the um, Mind Charity website where they were saying um, even just joining a mental health charity, if you are a sufferer, alleviates one, stigma, and two, does make you feel better as well, Mm. leading to less bouts of depression, less manic episodes. Yeah, that sort of positive... Um, reaffirmation of yourself and that it's not just me and look I've got all these friends a sense of belonging when I started coming out I would put people into two categories really uh, either supportive or indifferent and when you say indifferent does that is that a good or a bad thing in that you know the whole um Oh come on, come on, man! You know it's all just in your head. Try and ah, try and okay. think positive. They're not being dicks, but they're not understanding, and they're not being supportive in that sense. Generally, it's not their like, their ignorance is not their fault. Yeah. Again, education. The, I don't know if I'd even call it ignorance, like because even then, that's got like. But you do every mental health sufferer is well aware that it does take a toll on relationships on the people around you. Yeah, of course. it definitely does, and we are genuinely aware, and we are sorry. And, <laughs> yeah. 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 And again, that perpetrates the the feeling of shame. Shame, yeah, because you think, oh God, what am I doing to my family? What? And yeah. then with the whole thing, what I said earlier about suicide, where people get this sense of relief, like they're doing the best thing. So by by killing myself, 
I'm removing myself from the problem. They're going to be free now. They, I'm not going to be a burden to them. Mm. So they, you know, they say throwaway comments. Oh, committing suicide is so selfish. How could they do that? Look what they've left behind. It's so selfish. Actually, it's probably the opposite of selfish. Yeah. Because I did a, a small bit of training with the Samaritans, which obviously are a suicide hotline for <laughs> phone line that that's specifically what is they it specifically are specifically or is it i thought there was other things as suicide well. uh. that's that's what it is and so actually every caller i mean people who do call up are not necessarily going to commit suicide but that's what the primary yeah. um, objective of most calls would be i'm thinking of yeah and you have to as a um a telephone operative or as a samaritan you have to ask every single person that calls are you feeling suicidal if they say yes then you lead on to methods because as you said this is all part of the thinking program say, like please tell me it's not you ask that question you qualify what kind of customer they are and then you put them through to the right department yeah. oh, you can use a rope okay we'll put you through to the rope department guns okay hang on a minute oh my god <laughs> we're we can be our own worst enemies you know in exactly and that's why um i think the service the samaritans are providing there is a, a support group in a sense mm. uh where it's the last line of defense maybe in terms of as a support group whereas i was saying when i was categorizing people into like supportive indifferent i was building up and i used uh, a picture of who's my support group right who's the people that if i am having an episode of i'm really lost thinking about suicide all the time are who, the, who are these to? people i can call and go to and rely on and i think that's uh, imperative is having a support group mm. but the thing is with increasing amounts of people living alone uh single parent families the support group which doesn't just have to be mum and dad it can be aunts uncles cousins what have you that's going away more and more so people's uh i was going to say natural support group yeah is in your extended family yeah, your support family, network that's kind of being eroded a bit it emphasizes the point that mental health is is a societal problem it's not just about individual sufferers it's about all of us as a society and also the government's got a responsibility to deal with it i mean in the recent the new obviously when jeremy corbyn got elected leader and he set up his shadow cabinet he for the first time elected a a minister for mental health Oh, he made like he yeah, made that uh, position. Yeah, it, it didn't exist before, and I did not know that. Yeah, Lu- Luciana Berger, because he recognised that there was a need for for this, um, and the position hadn't hadn't existed before. I say legitimises it in a sense. It acknowledges the problem, so it is slowly being recognised. What advice uh, would you have for non-sufferers, the friends, the family, the well-wishers? What is it they can do? Because I, 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 I can name some things that they shouldn't do. Pull yourself together. That's one. Um, oh, it'll be all right in the end, don't worry. A really bad one. I guess you could call it gaslighting. Where you try and convince them they don't have a mental health problem. Uh, yes. Where you're like, oh, that was, oh, come on. You were diagnosed years ago. That can't still be an issue. <laughs> like, that's a really bad one. Don't do that. That can make things a lot worse. I think just supportive, listening, patience um understanding educate yourself if you've got a friend or family member that that's suffering it you have a responsibility i think to to do some research and yeah. learn because that's going to weed your understanding that's going to make life better for, for, for everyone involved because i found we found uh online resources where there are in-depth they're quite 
there are some short, there are some mid-length, and there are some really long, in-depth PDFs. Yeah. And we'll link, I'll leave links on the website and on the SoundCloud, on the Twitter, on the Twitter, on the Facebook. <laughs> no, there are a lot of online resources from Mind and Rethink, I think, are the links that we... we that you're going to post but yeah. um I mean, general advice top two things one have patience yes the person you're dealing with is aware that it's taking a toll on you that you're getting frustrated with it especially i think the frustration comes from i really want to help but there's no clear guide on what it is exactly i can do sometimes it's not going to be a specific act that you can do that's going to help sometimes yeah. it's just being there just lending an ear not getting angry just yeah yeah being, being sympathetic having patience and what's the i've heard a lot of people say i just want to be treated like a normal person i just want to be treated like everybody else i yeah, don't every want human yeah yeah so much- that's a bit it's a little bit catch 22 yeah because you want you expect some extra understanding because of your no. condition but i guess a little bit of leeway please leeway yeah, yeah. you don't want to be like if I've been a dick to you in an email, it might not be because of you. <laughs> it's not like, oh, oh, poor Tom. Poor, poor old Tom having to suffer with it. You know, that's not yeah. what you want. That, that's too... And the, the thing is, it's such a fascinating area as well. Even if you know somebody with mental health or if you don't. I mean, the likelihoods with the statistics of one in four people, you probably do know somebody. Exactly. But... Even if you don't, it's such a fascinating area of discussion and debate. And and because, yeah, we are all susceptible to it. So for your own benefits, to educate yourself, because one day it could ha- something could happen to you. You don't know. brought you on today it's like sounds weird and we're recording in your flat (laughs) (laughs) the reason i invited jenna on for this uh mental health talk is um jenna brought to my attention something that i wasn't previously aware of there is a correlation perhaps if maybe even a direct link between levels of homelessness and the amount of homeless people that suffer from some form of mental health illness it's again it's a a wide ranging debate and the the one of the biggest questions within it is is does mental health condition cause homelessness does homelessness cause mental right, health the issues egg and the chicken. yeah right okay and i think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle a little bit of column a a little bit from column b yeah and again you can and as we say the vicious cycle that's connected with yeah and and then obviously alcohol and substance abuse also come within the the realm of um mental health problems and this you can apply that to do you become homeless because you're an alcoholic or do you start drinking or using drugs because you're homeless um, to help you deal with that. Do you start drinking and taking drugs because of a, I was going to say latent mental health issue that becomes more Self-medicating, yeah. As you're on that downward spiral, it becomes worse and worse. It's exacerbated. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, chicken and the egg is actually a, a really good analogy to use Because I did read a statistic that said uh, up to 80% of homeless people r- uh, report either they've had Either they've been directly diagnosed 
having a mental health problem, or at the very least they believe they have some sort yeah. of mental health problem. Up to 80% report that. The, the statistics that I'm aware of are that the, the prevalence of common mental health issues, such as uh, depression, severe depression, are over twice as high amongst rough sleepers than the normal population mm-hmm. and that serious mental disorders such as schizophrenia or, or bipolar or psych- psychotic episodes is about 25 to 30 percent of street homeless which is an overrepresentation again mm-hmm. and also that if you're street uh, street homeless are 50 to 100 times more likely to have a psychotic disorder so there definitely is a th- th- there's a link there, and that it's. Uh, I suppose would it be fair to consider homelessness, rough sleeping, a mental health issue? No, no, because. Okay, moving on. No, yeah, yeah. no it's not. I mean, maybe for some people, yes, but I think the 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 notion of homelessness and rough sleepers, and certainly from my experience of of volunteering with various organisations, is you cannot apply general theories to homelessness. There's not one fixed narrative no. in regards to it. No, there might be trends or but there there is no single reason. It's usually a, a whole combination of factors. There's a report by Crisis in 2009 which was looking up the the relation or mental health and and sync single homeless people and that there is uh, the overall research shows that as stability of housing increases the rates of serious mental illness decreases so that there is a correlation there it's like by saying, in, whether it's direct causation yeah is up for debate really absolutely it does at the very least presumably show if you're going to set up, say, hypothetically, you're going to set up a mental, um, a homelessness charity, mm-hmm. one element you would have to take in consideration is we should have someone who's maybe on the ball in regards to mental health yeah. issues. And this is, there is a severe lack of this, I think, at, at present. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to people yeah the the the, um, many homeless people have got mental health problems but there doesn't seem to be the infrastructure there to deal with that is there a sense of urgency on that front not that i've noticed which is quite surprising it's more get rough sleepers off of the street as opposed to um diagnosing i to be honest i'm not even sure about getting people off the street either that the, the the largest proportion of help or assistance available is food. Mm, right. Okay. Yeah. So because that's what's most prevalent in terms of uh, an excess that people have that they can give away quite easily. Yeah. And so it's you you won't go hungry in London. I mean, every single day, probably two three times a day, there's access to food. Okay. So we've talked a fair amount about like the dime uh, the downward spiral effect so obviously um i guess maybe this is kind of rock bottom in a sense that this the downward spiral goes all the way down to homelessness potentially and then hopefully it doesn't go further than that um yes and no because as you said before not not all homeless people have got mental health problems and stuff mm. some people uh it's hard to 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 sort of discuss this because obviously I've had a lot of interaction with many different homeless people and it sounds strange to say but it's not all doom and gloom 
Mm-hmm. For yeah. for a lot of guys, particularly guys who who haven't got problems with alcohol or drugs, they they just want to step outside society. It's not. I'm not saying homelessness has been a choice for them because it hasn't. I mean, it's been triggered maybe by a relationship breakdown. Yeah, nobody would willingly choose. Would plan their way. No. Um, however. Uh, to be honest, just to say, relationship breakdown is the the biggest cause of homelessness. But... Um, like I say, it's important to bear in mind. I mean, we don't want to give the false impression that every single person, a homeless person you meet ever mm. is like psychotic. Because that is far from the truth. That is far... Mm. To, and, and obviously, there with psychotic uh, or psychotic episodes, that that's severe mental health problems. And yeah, stress that the, the public doesn't need to panic. Just because oh. you see someone sleeping, rough sleeping, don't panic. No. and And it's funny because it's probably the people that you notice more might be the, the the real scruffy guy chatting to himself and doing weird things talking about how the nazis coming back yeah. from the moon and so that's the, the one you're going to notice mm. so you might then make the that's where the sort of stereotype comes from because that's you know however five other people might be walking past you or look very clean and they're homeless and they're, that's a large and then there's the stigma associated with that oh he's wearing better trainers than i yeah. have and there's a large maybe they would donate it to him yeah there's a large proportion of of um the the, the london homeless community obviously i can only comment on that because that's what i know but who take great pride in not uh having any visible evidence that they're homeless they're they're always cleanly shaven cleanly washed clean clothes um obviously maybe a giveaway thing is a big rucksack because you mentioned um your experiences working with homeless cha- uh, homelessness charities yeah. is tied to london now what is the statistic uh rough sleeping has doubled more than doubled it's doubled more than doubled since 2010 so since uh de facto tory government has come in homelessness has basically exploded you could that sort of rate of increase you could call an explosion yeah um and interesting that you say that since the Tory government come in, because people like to jump on that as that's the reason why. Not quite sure that it is the reason okay. why. It's um, it is it is it makes it it makes it a funny statistic because when Boris Johnson was elected mayor, he declared that he was going to end homelessness in the city uh, by the time the Olympics came. I think he said two nights, wasn't it? So you would only someone would rough sleep for one night, but not a second. No night. second night out. Yeah. So we started that organisation, which is a great organisation has done a lot of a lot of good work it, it hasn't done what it says on the tin it doesn't okay but but it does do a lot of good work but he he said that he would end rough sleeping in the capital and then the ir- irony is that it's more than doubled mm. but that's not all boris's fault far from it i mean it's quite trendy to say that and you know as it's a kind tor- of a trend in the conservative party to miss targets to woefully come in yeah. short now, it's quite poignant that um, that statistic came out in an election year. Because uh, this, is it May 3rd? Oh, the, the mayoral election. London, yeah, mayoral Fifth, election. 5th of May. So, 5th of May. Now, you, you probably don't know this, but you might have heard Jenna's voice before. You might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, where is that, that Welsh tang? No, she wasn't the lead that. singer of Catatonia. Oh, no, of course not. Well, you, well, you could have been. <laughs> Mulder and Scully. It's the London mayoral election on May the 5th. And uh, LBC, London's Biggest Conversation, a very popular radio station with um, dimwits, shall we say? (laughs) (laughs) 
you know those you know the um the really opinionated assholes that call in but they had uh a number of mayoral candidates on. It wasn't just Tory we, and Labour. We had Tory, Labour, um, UKIP, the Greens, and I think the Lib Dem lady was there as How well. much does that UKIP guy look like he just walked out of a pub? <laughs> he probably has. <laughs> <laughs> but he looked look like he just walked out of a random pub and someone went up to him and said, look, we need, we're not going to win, right? But we need a candidate. We've got to at least look like a legit party. We have to put someone forward. And he was just like, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, you know, what is it, bacon scratches, isn't it? Like, <laughs> <laughs> he does obviously look like a wrong one. But we're going to be, um, like I say, LBC Radio, were, they had all the London mayoral candidates on. We're only going to really going to focus on the Tory and Labour candidates, who uh, respectively is uh, Zach Goldsmith and Sadiq Khan. Oh, can we... I want to listen to the UKIP guy as well, because he says something interesting. Oh, okay, yeah. So Jenna has been immortalised more than once. We're not the first to immortalise Jenna. She called in to uh, LBC Radio whilst the London mayoral candidates were on to ask a specific question in relation to rough sleeping in London. We're going to have a little listen to that right now. Hopefully Sadiq isn't doing his Goldsmith. <laughs> that was a bit weird. That was really weird. I like Sadiq, but that was a bit odd. But we're going to have a little listen right now. Otherwise, the bus lanes would be clogged <laughs> up. Mr. That's Goldsmith, the point thank I you. Made. To a serious issue, Jenna Honestly, is in Haringey. Jenna, please put your call to the panel. Go ahead. Hello. Um, rough sleeping in London is more than doubled in 2010. Mm. Um, if elected London Mayor, how do you plan to confront this important issue? This is something that the current mayor promised he would try and tackle, sadly, and I'm sure he feels great regret he has failed. Sadiq Khan, how would you travel, tackle the problem of rough sleeping? First thing is to stop people becoming homeless in the first place. 38 increase over the last years, doubled over the last uh, eight years. Uh, I went out with St Mungo's of Broadway on a, on a, on a uh, outreach session before Christmas and spent a day at crisis at Christmas. So just pausing it there, like, so Sadiq's gone in hard on the, uh, the prevention is better than cure ethos, do you know what I mean? But to me, that's a little bit like... Um, Generic bullshit. Well, it's, it's the, it's the, um, the horse is already bolted tight, do you know what I mean? Like the problem's already there, so you can't prevent a problem that's already there. Yeah, so he is right in a way that this is definitely something that needs to be tackled, yeah, because you want to stop people from becoming... Because once someone's entrenched as homeless, it's very hard to get them out. However... That, yeah, that ain't going to um, help the, the 7,000 people or whoever it is that are sleeping on the streets of London. I think it would, it would leave people with the impression um, that's a long-term thing where obviously there's nothing wrong with long-term fix. Mm. But there's a short-term problem here as well that Sadiq would give the impression there that this is not really an issue for him. Like, it's not a priority to him. It's I, something that would be on the back burner that maybe he'll deal with if he finds time. It just sounds sort of like thing. a nice little soundbite. You know, yeah, a little bit bullshit, but we'll let him. We'll let him carry on as, uh, as well. Um, we've got to make sure that when people are, uh, if they do become homeless, there's the, the help given to them. But if you can prevent them getting homeless, so for example, in relation to young people who've got mental health problems, in relation to young people who have alcohol problems or, or drug dependencies, try and help them before they become uh, homeless. One of the key things in relation to younger people, all of us were at Hustings last, last night, Pride Hustings. If you, for example, are uh, LGBT uh, plus, sometimes the circumstances at home may mean you leaving home. Often people in London have come from other parts of the uh, country. The trick is to stop young people 
people and people becoming homeless in the first place. Once they are, we've got to address the complex issues that they face. Forget no second night out in relation to homeless people. We need a no first night out thing that, that works in essence, that's, working that's with the charities, working with local authorities. But you know, we, we got rid of homelessness during the noughties. It, it was a fact that in, when I was growing up in the 90s, that it was cardboard city around Waterloo. Mm. The government working with the previous mayor got rid of homeless people in London. It can be done with this... Well, that that's a pretty grandiose claim there. That homelessness actually got rid of, no. yeah, disappeared. That never happened. They, it was decreasing. That that's a fact. Okay. And there was a, I um, think, I, I don't know the statistics, but he made out like an eradication. Of yeah, it. which is obviously not true. I I, I personally don't think that's ever going to be possible. Jenna's not buying it, so do. Yeah. Uh, what else you got? Political will and ambition. Is that the Chancellor has announced okay, he's got nothing here. Is he? Sorry, <laughs> right, that was really bad timing on my part. All right, let's see. Let's see what Zach. Come on, Zach. Zach you you listen to this guy. You get the impression he's never seen a homeless person, but we'll give him a fair crack. 110 million pounds additional uh, spending to deal with homelessness. The next mayor of London needs to fight to get as much of that as possible, and we need to invest in early intervention and prevention. I went to see a group called Veterans Aid, a magnificent organisation. Oh. If you remember, for years, people that the, the sort of the, the poster I- image of homelessness has been former soldiers uh, on our streets. That is a problem that has almost been solved as a consequence of Veterans Aid. And, uh, I'm not sure almost solved is quite correct, Zach. But is there a bit of a mis-selling going on there, though, where the um, the the conception of oh, it's PTSD veterans. No, there's a lot of veterans on the streets. A lot. That that's a fact, and you you see it whether it be older gentlemen. Um, you know, I you know one guy was in the the Royal Navy for 25 years. Um, oh, I was going to say it's. Um, do you think there's a direct correlation? We obviously there were two. Not major wars, Iraq, well, Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Is this the knock-on effect of that? Um, I think... The the rate of rough sleeping going up? No, I, I wouldn't say that's the cause. I mean, there are there are people, um, ex-forces on the streets. But basically, he's not talking absolute bollocks there when he says that. No, veterans say, but he said that we've almost eradicated that. I, I'm not, I don't think that's quite true. All right, let's let him carry on preventing people from getting into homelessness at, at the outset. There is an enormous amount we can do through prevention, through investing in, in Same as Sadiq, really. organizations that yeah. have a proven track record of solving this problem. Peter Whittle, you've and been bouncing up there on your yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, I think it is, uh, it is one of the most palpable failures, actually, of... No, hold on. I don't recognize... Who's this guy? This is the UKIP guy. This is UKIP Yeah. Guy. For Boris Johnson, that uh, he wanted to uh, obliterate homelessness and rough sleeping, and in fact, it's it's doubled. Obliterate. <laughs> um, I would like to create a homelessness register actually, at City Hall, and take. What the, was that achieved? Well, it would take the same approach as what would happen uh, if you remember. Well, it was one of our policies actually at the last but election. What would it achieve? Well, no. The point would be that actually you would um, be able to give advice. Right to people who maybe, for example, uh, should be getting benefits but are not getting benefits but are homeless, right. or basically people who need certain sort of health okay. um, solutions, and so that's um, that would be a central bank. He's basically you shaking your head a little bit. He's there. basically talking bollocks because such a thing already exists. Ah. It's called the chain, and it is a, a list of is this homeless like a national people. registrar. Yes. And it is, yeah, it documents people's uh, names and some details. It's more, it's not 
really used to help people. It's more just to keep a record. And, you know, if somebody dies as well, then they get taken off the yeah, chain. Yeah, I mean, is there like an impetus to, for action that comes no. from having this list? No, it's just kind of about records. But you've also got to remember that a lot of people become homeless to disappear. They 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 want to go escape. off grid in a sense. Yeah, they want to escape their previous lives. So a lot of the guys you meet, they they've got fake names. Right, they, they don't use okay. their proper names. So the idea of them giving all their detail, it's yeah, just they wouldn't not give an honest happen. response yeah, anyway. It's not going to happen. So he's it's talking bollocks, really. He's out, out of touch and not. And again, if to then oh identify who's on bed, what are they going to do? There's no resources for that to happen. To go through this list and like we we'll tick them off. They got benefits. It's just not yeah, going mean, to happen. If, if they're homeless, how do you find them? You've got a, a name on the list, but no address. Yeah. There's no address, and yeah, probably the names are fake. Um, and and people don't want to be documented. They want to be removed from everything. So, I mean, do you find any of those responses in any way satisfactory? No. So, to, um, to kind of wrap up on the homelessness. I could talk about this for ages. Give, uh, give our listeners some... Uh, well, give our listeners, list out some of the homeless charities that operate in London. We're going to keep this to London because obviously that's where we live. But okay. give, uh, give some names and so that people can go start Googling if they want to get involved. Okay, well, you've got your main one, which is Crisis. I think most people would have heard of Crisis. Um, crisis at Christmas. That I think that's a good, if you want to start volunteering, that's a good place to start. It's over the Christmas period, seven days, they open up various um, centres across London, which accommodate um, rough sleepers, you know, you've got three, uh, one centre will hold 300 people and you have 10 centres across London. So you can imagine the amount of people that use this and you you sign up to do different shifts and it's highly rewarding personal experience, but also obviously for the guests that you see. And then you've got the Simon community, which is based in Camden, but but offers services a lot of services in Westminster they do soup runs so you go out in the van giving out soup street work where you're on foot um, finding rough sleepers talking handing out coffee they do a street cafe at Tottenham Court Road they do a women's group they do a winter shelter and you, you know you're not obliged to commit to X amount of hours a week you just sign up as and when and I mean you you get to meet uh, the most fascinating people uh, you can possibly imagine you you meet other great volunteers you you learn so much it's highly rewarding i think it's a a, a win-win situation really and if i remember to i'll leave i'll try and find some links mm. try and leave them in the description on, on the facebook page or what have you and uh when we come back how appropriate that we're talking about shifty looking vagabonds and Nah, I'm not going to take that back. Yeah, yeah I'm going to take that back. I'm trying to make a link. I'm trying to make a link between Corbin and homelessness. Corbin's <laughs> going to end homelessness. As we come back, we'll be reviewing a theatre show that Jenna and I went to earlier in the week uh, called Corbin the Musical. You might have heard about it on the BBC. More on that when we come back. Coming back. Right, so um, as Jenna alluded to earlier in the podcast, we both went to see Corbin the Musical, semicolon, The Motorcycle Diaries. So this obviously is um, political satire, comedy, 
And uh, it was written by two journalists, I found out. Young guys as well, in their tw- early 20s, I think. Yeah, Rupert Myers and Bobby Friedman. And I thought that was a bit odd. Like, it's not really... I didn't think that was typical, that journalists would write, yeah. they would pen a musical. Yeah, I don't know how, how it came about. I think probably they maybe sitting around one day and throwing up all these... Yeah. I think it started off as a joke. I think they joked about how when, um, obviously, when Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party, even though he'd been in Parliament, I think, what, for 32 years already? No one knew who he was. Nobody in the establishment, no one in the press really knew who Jeremy Corbyn was. And so everything that came out about him was a fresh discovery. And uh, one of the most um, sizzling revelations was, of course, that he and Diane Abbott allegedly... Yeah, it's not confirmed. Yeah, they won't admit it. But... But Allegedly, there was relations. (laughs) It's always described as relations. They were fucking... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Rupert and Bobby, they got together, they wrote this satirical political political satire inspired by the unprecedented event a left winger being elected to lead the Labour Party it's been a while since we've had that phenomenon but uh, I'll give you a basic outline of the plot so uh, it's set in uh, a future where Corbyn actually won the 2020 election and um, Boris Johnson is leader of the opposition indeed he won that uh, he beat out George and Therese to be leader of the Conservative Party And uh, he's faced with the threat of nuclear destruction by Vladimir Putin. And uh, as it transpires, Vladimir and Jeremy, they had, or Jezza, they have a past encounter. And it's written that um, whilst Diane Abbott and Jeremy Corbyn were going on the motorcycle tour of uh, East Germany, East Germany, communist East Germany, they bumped into Vladimir Putin at some point. And it all like this. So as the course of the play is going on, there's time jumps. Yeah. And um, one thing I did quite like was how these flashbacks are always triggered by Diane Abbott referring to Jeremy Corbyn as giant Jai turkey. A little play term for <laughs> Jezza. What are you talking about, jive turkey? <laughs> and then, yeah, you get Jeremy um, with his curly, almost Afro-style hair and um, Diane's long-flowing weave and psychedelic headband indicating we're in the 70s now. Yeah, and the actor playing Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Martin Neely, I found one, the physical resemblance was there. He looked like a young Jeremy Corbyn. It was, I thought, when he was playing um, Jeremy in in 2020 or whatever years, the the, the present day, yeah, he got the mannerisms, the look down to a T to the point where I I almost felt like I was watching Jeremy Corbyn. Really, really convincing. He not only, he got the mannerisms down, yeah, perfect. His um, cadence when speaking was very Jeremy Corbyn. But he also, on a more abstract level, he got, to me, for me, Jeremy Corbyn has a kind of childlike innocence to him. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that he named his cat El Cato, which is just Spanish for the cat. Do you know what I mean? That's the kind of thing a child would do if they were given the right, the privilege of naming the family pet. And he caught that childlike innocence and almost naivety. I mean, obviously, it's a backhanded compliment. Mm. Uh, the underlying theme is that Jeremy Corbyn's not really cut out. Well, he's an idealist, uh, a sort of, yeah, with a, an almost naive idea that everything can be okay if we all work together. And uh, to give you a sense of what the show is like, we're going to 
play a BBC Daily Politics clip. First and foremost, I'm playing this clip just because it's Joe Coburn, and I love Joe Coburn. Go on, Joe Cole. And uh, it'll give you an idea. It, they play the intro number that repeats throughout the show. Like I say, Jeremy Corbyn gets it. He gets skewered, but everyone gets skewered as well. But yeah, the main driving force... <laughs> forces letting the world know that jeremy corbyn might not be appropriate to be leader to be prime minister but let's listen to uh, joko but he does come across as a, a very nice man he's very nice very genuine very he sincere very nice man let's listen to joko introduce corbyn the musical on daily politics who plays the lead role in Corbyn the Musical, a new off-West End musical comedy about the Labour leader's supposed motorbike holiday through East Germany in his early years. Sound tempting? Here's Giles with a sneaky peek ahead of tonight's opening night. If I don't hear back, I'm going to go to the council and have that Leylandia ripped down and shoved right... right in a recycling bin. They said I couldn't win There'd never be a PM called Jeremy Corbyn Now I am in power The clouds will disappear The sun shines on the righteous Hope will conquer fear For a satire about Jeremy Corbyn His fans should like this It imagines him as PM World's in my hands You sleep safe at night Now you're with the left We're getting it right I didn't sell out I didn't give in You needed a hero Corbyn. It opens tonight. I've taken on big business. I'll super tax the banks. I'm in all the bedroom tax and cancelled all the tanks. I'm beneath the checkers. My palms are never greased. I've opened up the state rooms to migrants from the east. And whilst <laughs> Labour is the focus, no party or person escapes ridicule. Women only carriages and manifesto vow. All children have to learn about the words of Chairman Mao. <laughs> My career was always stalling. Now I'm in the driver's seat today. The red flag's flying above ten. It has Diane Abbott, President Putin and Jeremy Corbyn portrayed and of course it always helps if you pick a lead actor who, well, you know, has the look. So as we said, as Jenna said earlier, yeah, he does look like a young Jeremy Corbyn, which does help you kind of buy into the story yeah. that you're watching it does help absolutely absolutely but then you had the the other actor what was the guy's name that played both putin and boris johnson uh david muscat yeah he was the highlight for me yeah I definitely think. a show stealer for me yeah yeah he did but even to the point that you didn't realize right till halfway through that he was playing both boris and putin yeah he he has a very convincing Russian accent. Mm -hmm. He has a very convincing Boris accent. And when he's wearing the ridiculous blonde wig, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to recognize. Yeah, no, that's me. He he totally embodied both of them, who are completely opposite characters, really. But mm, yeah. he he it was very convincing. He got the buffoonery of Boris down perfect. And again, speaking on the abstract level, the strange attractiveness of Putin. I think that's just you, Tom. You know, like the <laughs> The daddy bear type, you know? And strong, but... Um, Comforting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, as, as well as sort of really capturing the essence of, of the characters, they all had fantastic singing voices because it is a musical after all. Yeah, true. And, you know, initially I was a little bit sceptical about that, thinking I don't really like musicals and thinking, oh God. But it was really enjoyable top quality kind of performances well, there were two things i was surprised by one it was funnier than i thought it was going to be it was laugh out loud i thought it was going to be um 
you know, when you're at secondary school and your friends are doing a play and there's that, it's not really funny, but there's a sympathetic laugh. You do laughter. a little polite laugh. Yeah, that <laughs> wasn't, and I think that was the case here. No, it was laugh out loud. Some yeah. points really laugh out loud. In a review I read in New Statesman, Stephen Bush, they criticised it as, they got the impression that the audience was only laughing because they recognised the names of people. I thought it was a little bit deeper than that. Yeah. It I, wasn't just mindless pop referencing, do you know what I mean? No, it wasn't. And and in the way that satire works, it is you pull on sort of common factors or, or characteristics of people and you make that, that the joke. And yeah. that's where the understanding comes from. I mean, I guess because there's um, when it comes to satire, some people are real purists in the sense of to qualify as satire, there has to be some emphasis on making society better, right? Now, obviously, with Corbin the musical, that element doesn't really exist to that. So, I think it is more—I would call it more parody, mm-hmm. perhaps, than satire. But it definitely wasn't highbrow humor, but it wasn't lowbrow humor either. It was kind of in the middle. Yeah, and it was kind of it, it had the sort of surreal fringe element to it as well like edinburgh fringe it was there was a quirky element to it if you want it wasn't i wouldn't describe it as as mainstream humor necessarily in terms of like production values as well it lacks the polish Mm. of a big stage show like um wicked or les miserables something like that but but you're really drawn into it uh, you don't need the special effects. You don't need yeah. the 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 lighting. It the 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 production speaks for itself, and it yeah, really. Yeah, one point you where in. they're riding a motorbike and it's just two chairs. Yeah, but um, the music itself, like so, that clip we played you is just a, a lone piano. There was a full-on band when yeah, we were to go the see The bassist, it. the guitar. Yeah, we saw it at the uh, Waterloo East Theatre, and that's Waterloo East is in the train station, so it's right by the train station, and that was unfortunate, and that every now and then a train would come rumbling yeah. past, and sometimes you might miss a punchline because you couldn't I, quite hear it. I actually thought at first that that was the, the rumblings of a nuclear war, and that it was part <laughs> of the of the sound effects, but then, yeah, slowly yeah. realised it was the, the trains. The spectre of nuclear holocaust. <laughs> yeah. But no. Uh, it's just a 1025 <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no one really escaped the you, you had um yeah i think most people are saying uh diane abbott got it the worst the sexual predator yeah i mean in this she is portrayed primarily as a sex pest uh the second thing she's portrayed as is a complete fucking hypocrite which i think is entirely accurate she's made so many hypocritical statements yeah exactly it's not as if it's uh, intentionally nasty things that you've just made up it's it's based on what how she's behaved in the public life and it's just drawing on that in a extremely humorous way yeah and it definitely wasn't i think there's um there could be a little bit of race baiting going on here no i think people are going to be tempted to say oh she got it the worst because she's black no she whoever got it the- says that's an idiot yeah she got it the worst because she's diane abbott exactly you know I mean? <laughs> exactly the fact that she's black normally is inconsequential right do you know what i mean like yeah and so you get her and jeremy who is her lover at the time discussing the education of their potential children in the future <laughs> And he's, Jeremy's obviously horrified at the prospect of sending them to private school. <laughs> yeah, reference. That's a real life reference. Uh, yeah. Well, he said he divorced uh, one of his, how many wives? Is he had two wives, three wives? Two, I think. Yeah, he but... said he divorced his first wife over an argument over where they were going to send their kids to school. Well, I don't know if he said that, but that's what was being reported. Okay, okay. And well, actually, Diane is not the only one who gets it. 
someone else who gets it quite hard, I thought, was uh, Tony Blair. Still lingering. He's still around like that bad smell. He's still the... Hunger. Um, what, was, what was the song? Hunger for being a warmonger or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, it was James, an actor called James Dinsmore, who played Tony Blair. I l- want to give special mention to James Dinsmore's facial expressions. Yes. They were 100% on point. He's just got, he's one of those people that's just got an incredibly funny face. And I don't mean that in terms of ugly or anything like that. His gormlessness, his portrayal of Tony Blair as a gormless, warmongering idiot was spot in on. In a wheelchair. Yeah, he's wheelchair bound. Just, And I love the fact that... Putting him in a wheelchair, you think, would might make Tony Blair more sympathetic. It doesn't. It doesn't at all. You're kind of like, oh, justice at last. You know, we're not going to get chill cut in our lifetimes, but we but might see Tony Blair suffer for some real physically crippling ailment <laughs> before he dies. There was uh, a, a number of references to chill cut as well. I think was it Tony Blair in exchange for for his advice wanted chill cut to be murdered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I I agree with Peter Hitchens just to put such a fine point on it there should be an inquiry into the chill court inquiry that never gets published it's that beautiful irony i felt the um the plot overall obviously it's humorous i mean just the idea once you find out that uh once it's alleged that diane abbott and jeremy corbyn had a sex-fueled tour motorcycle tour of eastern germany of east germany right communism there's, tourism yeah there's there's a inherent humor in that right but you have to flesh it out like it's not just that you can't rely on just that one gag to carry you mm. through i think it was like a two-hour play i felt this plot wasn't the strongest no it was just a, a sort of uh, a thread for in which they could throw in these hilarious um satirical musical numbers that kind yeah. of because i mean there's there isn't a strong you don't really get a strong idea of why putin is threatening london with nuclear destruction not until well, maybe you do not to spoil anything but yeah, i mean i do i really do i kind of do want to spoil it because unfortunately we wanted to be able to report to you that you could go down to waterloo east theater between now and the 30th of april and go see this unfortunately all of the tickets are sold out uh they're making a big deal of not announcing a second run at the moment because we had the tickets how long ago january december maybe even december i booked these i mm. booked these i think two days after it was announced that there was going to be a corp in the musical i booked these but given that it has sold out so quickly it has been so popular there's it, gotta be a second run yeah. somewhere and the thing is it's a very small theater i think it's yeah, like, less than 100 seats yeah and like I said, it's r- directly underneath a train station, which was unfortunate. But I'm sure there'll be a second run. If you, however, you are desperate to go see Corbin the Musical, uh, you might get lucky if you show up and uh, someone else no-shows and their ticket is left at the box office. You might be able to purchase it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on that. Maybe if you're in the area and you're passing by, but... Yeah, if you're on your way home and your train's <laughs> yeah. been delayed and you're really pissed off about it, you want to go have a laugh... So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for tuning in this week. Uh, special thanks to my special guest, Welsh Dinner. Thank you very much, Tom, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on and uh, educating us a little bit in terms of uh, homelessness and helping me, supporting me, talk about mental health. Yeah, well, hopefully it will have a little bit of inspiration for, for others listening, to whether that's to 
talk more about mental health or educate themselves or, or to volunteer. That's yeah, something. come on, guys, get involved. It's all about talking. Damn straight. It's all about talking here on the Tom, Dick and Hyman show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for not talking, audience. <laughs> you don't really get that opportunity. You don't have that luxury to talk to us. Yet. <laughs> Yeah, for, oh, I, I kind of hate Skype. Well, I don't know anything about Skype, and I don't know if I could set up an interview here through. It's easy. A laptop. Once I get noticed by more famous people, we'll start doing Skype interviews. <laughs> but for the time being, for the time being, I'm just going to interview people I know. <laughs> I mean, I think they're some of the people I know are interesting. That includes you. That wasn't a. Um, <laughs> That wasn't me saying it, it's not interesting. <laughs> anyway, I'm fucking up this wrap-up. Okay. Signing off. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Peace out.